As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou, a voice you're familiar with by now, my teacher and mentor, Professor Siba Grovergy. Thank you once again for coming back to The Malcolm Effect. How are you, Professor? I am fine, thank you. It's an absolute honour and privilege to have you back on the show for, I think, it's a third time. So I guess we want to talk about all what is happening in West Africa right now. We've seen a succession of coups and many of us are wondering how do we come to assess these what is happening could you help probably provide some historical background and context yes as much as i can (laughs) (laughs) yes what is happening today in west africa is at once sad but it also offers a glimmer of hope in some ways everybody knows that coups are illegal that even people who are fomenting them or people are supporting them actually realize that. The question then is not so much whether the coups that are happening today in West Africa are legal or not. Rather, it's um, the larger question behind it is um, a question of legitimacy, but it's also a question of pragmatism at some level. The huge question has to do with a number of things, but the most important part, and they can be summarized in, you know, thusly. West Africa, below the Sahel and even above, it, the Sahara region and, and the Mediterranean coast, had been undergoing important changes lately. The changes have to do with what the French called vivre ensemble, how we live together. Historically, that has been brokered, obviously, by a number of elites, both religious and non-religious secular, but it had always taken into account a number of factors in their education, living and letting live, sharing resources, solidarities, and yes, Right, a certain forms of government that actually, for the past centuries, several centuries, had something to do with sharing power, partage du pouvoir, have something to do with solidarity broadly. And our institutions in West Africa actually reflected some of those. And, and you can see that in a lot of events, phenomena in, 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 in the Sahel region, in above, both north and south of it, that are fast disappearing. And mm-hmm. those have to do with obviously events that are internal and external to the region. And I think that if I were to summarize just broadly, that's what I, I, I would say. Now, if I want to spell out what I said, it's very difficult to tell history, but I think that I'm going to, what I'm going to say is a sort of memory of certain things in West Africa that have been possible in the past that no longer possible given our circumstances. You know, we, West Africa, the region generally, generally speaking, has had a lot of influence from Muslims, doctrinal and mystic, Sufi, right? Shia, Sunni, but also, I mean, yeah, and then also Sufi movement, and etc. And that you can see in all of the empires that formed in, you know, over three centuries, four centuries, actually, in the region, there was a lot of influence from it. But the influences have been also very particular. If you look at West Africa, for instance, you look at a place like just look around and you'll see a lot of things that appear here and there that seem to be, for instance, we have um, 
in Senegal, which is Muslim, 90% Muslim, president of the country for 20 years after independence was from was um, Christian. And people voted for him. No coercion, no fake elections, no whatever, they voted for him. If you look at how people, you take a place like um, Burkina Faso, which is almost 50-50 Muslim and non-Muslim, the leadership there has always been either Christian Muslim, and in fact, sometimes they passed the baton from Wizem Kulbari to Yamiogo and etc. Et it was always sort of, you, you had that. And this is not just a question of the past. If you look at, for instance, um, Ghana, not long ago, two or three years ago, the imam of Kumasi went to a mass, mm-hmm. Eastern mass in, in Ghana. So this is what I call vivre ensemble. That there were some things that people could understand was necessary, which is living together in some fashion. And it's not just about how people in, in the everyday, uh, how people relate politically, etc. But even the material condition of life in part was actually where it was much more important. For instance, people in the Sahel knew that water was a problem. And so the way people lived around oases, right, was very interesting. For instance, our sovereign state boundaries did not really reflect the way people sort of had access to resources of life because it's a very barren and unforgiving land in, in the Sahel. And so people had to, to, to make do of that. And those things are not just things of, of, of the past. Mali and Burkina Faso, then Opa Volta, had actually a conflict around lakes, water in the past and went to the to the International Court of Justice. And what they both wanted for International Court of Justice was just to tell them how to draw a land that made them both share. Mm-hmm. But it was never the case that one of them, none of them, n- neither of those two countries wanted to have sole control of the water because that would have been actually counterintuitive given the, the, the region. And so, and, and we, we, right? So we had all of these things and, and it's a long history, but I just wanted to make sure that we understand that, that life has been possible together. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there was the colonial phenomenon, which began to interrupt that a bit. The, 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 when the French came in, one of the things, of course, they did was put on all these fixed boundaries we have today, which actually don't make sense in, in, in the desert. Um, so it, it cut people's mobility and etc. Uh, so that's one of the problems, one of the things that happened. Another thing that happened was, of course, the brutality with which French conquered West Africa. And in Niger in particular, I'm going to say that because there's an, an expedition in the 19th century in Niger which was one of the most brutal expeditions in, in, in colonial history in Africa, where the French sent in these soldiers, the two soldiers, to go basically put down these Africans who were resisting French occupation because they were, they were worried that, that the English might take over, might actually encroach upon the, the, what they considered to be their protectorate, and etc. So you had French intervention in the region also had some consequences on, on the kind of prior arrangement we had there. Um, why am I talking about that particular expedition? I'm talking about that particular expedition because it has consequence for, say, what is happening in Niger today. When you look at Niger, Niger, if you were, if you were 70 year person, certain person, certain age in Niger, either you would have your father directly, like your parent would have told you about these French expeditions and et cetera, but you would have lived, you would have lived to witness the, 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 the French repression of Algeria, Sétif and, and Gelma, which is not in Algeria, but still you would have heard about it. You would have heard about French nuclear tests, which affected Niger. You would have, uh, you would have lived to go, to live through the independence era in, of French intervention where Sawaba, the party of Djibo Bakari, was prevented really from, from gaining power. 
And then you would have, you would also witness how the French displaced people in the north to make way for French representation of, of uranium. That is actually something you would know. If you are from Burkina Faso <coughs> and Mali, Burkina Faso, of course, changed hand many times. It, it was its own entity. Then it was part of Cote d'Ivoire. Then it was its own entity again on the French colonial rule. But coffee plantation in, in, in cocoa plantation in Cote d'Ivoire depends on, on people from those regions going to work back in, in, in plantations in the south in Cote d'Ivoire. The relations between that and, and what happened to, to, to people in Burkina would also not be lost on somebody of a certain age who would pass on those, those stories to, to their children. In this region, there was at the time of independence, there was at the time of independence, a lot of debate about what arrangement, economic arrangement in particular will have between France and its colonies. Mm -hmm. One of them, of course, became what you call the CFA franc. But the other one was whether African economies should be structured around French need. People who were opposed to that, they are still in French archives, you can look at them. Biakaboda, Senator Biakaboda, who just disappeared. One of the first African leaders who disappeared without trace and nobody knows what happened to him. And of course, the real story, his family still holds that it had to do with the colonial occupier. Then you had Etienne Joman, and then you had Ozen Kulibali. Ozen Kulibali too, his death still is suspect. Right? All of these had something called Piakaboda, Ozen Kulibali, Etienne Joman, and a whole number of people, one of them being Gabriel Dabossier, had some in common. All of those had one France, that if you made African economy subsidiary to French economy, it will atrophy not only the French economy, but it, it, it will atrophy West African economies and it will make French economy an anemic and it will make the entire economic zone, French economic zone, anemic. Mm -hmm. That that was not a way to, on, that what the French were doing there, with the CFA included, was contrary to modern political economies. That, that it was not free trade, there was nothing free about it, and, and, and that basically what it does, it did, it, it shackled Africans. In fact, one of those people, Etienne Joma, had predicted what is happening in, in Africa today, that, that French interest in Africa will change over time because as uh, economies modernize, France will need less and less Africa, and Africa in the meantime would have been unable to really progress economically, and that at some point, you know, if, even the region will not be useful to, to France anymore. Mm -hmm. But he was, I mean, he had not anticipated the geopolitical stake today in, mm -hmm. in, in the Sahel, but what he was talking about was that the kind of economic arrangement we had were not at all viable. Mali. Mali is also one of those places where obviously the first coups in Africa happened. Yeah. In Francophone Africa, there was um, Silvanus Olympio in 1963. In 1966, Muribo Keita was overthrown. Muribo Keita was overthrown, obviously, there was an internal strife. But th there's two things here. The first one is that, that the cause of the, the rebellion in 1963 in, 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 in Mali, which led to the overthrow of Muribo Keita later, had to do with Mali adopting land reform that were French. Basically, this land reform brought post-enclosure property regimes to Africa, to a region which should not accommodate that, where you, you had herders and agriculturalists and etc., and wadis, very few wadis that people had co-managed and etc., etc. That was no longer possible, and that caused the people in the north of Mali to rebel. That was actually the first rebellion in Mali. It had to do, in, it was directly connected to land reform. Right, which is basically being an enclosure movement to a region that never knew those systems, but mm -hmm. apparently that was for being economically efficient. That was the mistake of Modibokita. The other thing, of course, is that his first hand in Modibokita is his overthrow, because Modibokita 
was of what they called the Afro-Socialist Progressive Africans and etc. And Moriba was close to Sekuture and Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, uh, but Senghor and Ofobwani were, of course, the, the two poles of French support in, in, in West Africa. And there was a prior history between Senghor and Moriba Keita. And because at independence, actually, Senegal and Mali were one country at independence. And then there was, there was a split between them. And Modibo went the direction of Sekuture and got close to Kwame Nkrumah. And that was not acceptable to France because um, the axis, especially the Nkrumah axis, because France was, was um, had always wanted to weaken Ghana and Nigeria, which is also what France did in supporting Biafra, to weaken Nigeria because they wanted you know, France to dominate the region. So, mm-hmm. so the strength of Ghana was actually, France at that time saw it as in its disfavor. So... Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because there is today this idea that what we have in West Africa is sort of antipathy to a French hatred from France and etc. In fact, if you look at it historically, there has been two things in, in, in Africa going in the Sahel and, and below it in the south, southern part of the Sahel and then in the north. It is whether we can be allowed to design systems of government that was proper to us with constitutional forms that are proper to us. Right, and the second part is what is should our relationship with France be? Right, and, and so it has. It, there, there have always been those two tracks. The, you, you can see in the election in Niger at independence and 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 rest of Africa, the murder of Umnyobe in Cameroon and etc. That that France sends its Berlin its Brazzaville conference, which is also a misnomer because we think of Af- France 1944 Brazzaville conference. As a, it's the Africa summit, we call it, but there was no African actually at the summit. It was <laughs> France coming to Africa and setting the terms for what, how France was going to govern Africa. Mm-hmm. That, so, right, and one of those funny things, Brazzaville conference, it was a, a France, French conference mm-hmm. and France, a conference by France of French people in Africa to determine what French is, France's relationship was to it with, with Africa. So that is actually, that has always been one of the layers. So, and, and that, the trajectory of that is clear. Mm-hmm. Again, after World War II, from right after the, the war, city of Gelman, et cetera, all the way to, to the coups in, in Benin, I mean, in, in, in Togo, Mali, and then obviously Opa Volta, mm-hmm. everywhere. Then, then the coups multiplies. Those coups had the handmark, the, the fingerprint of a man called Foucault, of course, right? Yeah. So the French actually had a, somebody whose memoirs are known because they, are, they have been published and etc. That had to this that a, a man whose job was to preserve French interests in Africa. Yeah. Now one of those interests, and I'm jumping around. I know, but I just want to pull out threads here. One of those interests was Elf Petroleum, mm. which explains Gabon. Gabon after World, after World War One, when settlements were being made, like Pico in the Middle East, France ended up with the least petroleum-rich provinces in the Middle East, Syria and Lebanon. Mm-hmm. With Gabon, basically France had decided, obviously because oil is tragedy, that France began to treat Gabon the way the U.S. treated Saudi Arabia and the British Iran until Mossadegh was overthrown. Right? This is geopolitics, which is that France will not forgive anybody touching on French interests, oil interests, in Congo, Brazzaville, and Gabon. And Gabon is actually where Elf, the French company, basically put root. Which is why you you, you you can see that in Gabon, one family ruled for 52 years and nobody complained, <laughs> right? Because yeah. the French made sure that there was no alternative to this family as long as this family protected French interests in Gabon. So Gabon, Niger, 
Mali, Burkina. All of them have that common thread about France after World War II trying to maintain its power, mm-hmm. which earlier on we used to call La Grandeur Française, French Grandeur, which is formulated by a man called Gilles Ferry, and no French politician has ever varied from it, which is mm-hmm. that France has the right, by right, France has to meddle in the affairs of Africa. Mm-hmm. That is actually state policy stated in 1885 in the French Parliament. That's a, a real text, wow. Gilles Ferry. And so that is what I said. The other part obviously has to do with Africans themselves, which is that in this process, we have to acknowledge that France did not do this sort of unilaterally. It depended on a number of Africans going along. Yeah. Right? And they went along. In the case of Cote d'Ivoire, it made Cote d'Ivoire the primary cocoa producer in the world. Right? Because the CFA stabilizes cocoa production. Right? Because you pegged currencies on, on French francs and, and etc. The cost of that was, of course, heavy. It meant that, that Africans put an incredible amount of money, 40% of the foreign currency reserves in the French treasury. What that did was, again, create oddities. For instance, in the 1970s, either Renault or Peugeot, I don't know which one now, was the seventh car maker in the world. You couldn't find any of their cars sold in, in America, anywhere else in the world. Why? Because it was all bought by Africans. That's what Africans bought. If you wanted to buy cars, you went to the French, you wanted to buy something, they will tell you, no money available, but we can give you a line of credit. Because they have your money. So you buy French goods. So mm. basically, <laughs> we're, we're stuck in buying French goods yeah. and we made French the economic power that it is. Yeah. Right? So that is... The history. That, that is, that is, that is, the history is messy. But, and I want to come back to the role of Africans. Africans did something we call, in English, subordination. Not subordination, but subordination. That they actually lied to themselves and to their own people and created justification for these kind of regimes. Again, in the French Empire, it goes from 1952, what they call disappointment, when the French ask Ophobayou to get rid of all the progressives in the RDA on the ground that they were communists. And that struggle was actually particularly messy, but it was the, the first one to introduce the idea, the RDA was created as a, as a pan-African organization. Mm-hmm. The person who introduced ethnic differences and racial differences in the movement was actually founder of Webwani in his letter to Daboussier, telling Daboussier he has to leave the party. Mm-hmm. And Daboussier has to leave the party. Why? Because Daboussier was not properly African. He was not properly African. Why? Because his father was French and his mother was African. And in Africa, party lineage comes before my lineage. And that was one of the arguments used against Daboussier. Now, obviously, <laughs> the paradox is that Daboussier's mother is a niece of Elijah Martal. So she's actually the daughter of, of a prince. But that didn't count because his father was white. And so you can already see that, that in our politics, our politics in West Africa begin to be ugly. We begin to introduce ethnicity, religion, came in later as a way of getting rid of people, uh, pushing people aside and etc. But the most important one was actually to convince African people that the Francophonie, the CFA, and all of these arrangements that we had with France were good for us economically, that they will help us move forward, right, development. And that, that lie, when it was being made, is what Silvanus Olympio saw. He's an economist trained at LSE, the president of Togo. That is what he saw when he opposed the French CFA, and that's why he too got overthrown and died. So it was that people had to invent 
lies and to deceive themselves that mm-hmm. these arrangements were good for us and all the people who saw it for what it was, mm-hmm. right? The, the hoax that it was, obviously paid a heavy price for it. Yeah. They were either excluded, marginalized, were killed. But in the end, obviously, the events today are proving that those people who were critique were not, in fact, anti-fresh. That is the, the irony. They were not anti-fresh. They were the ones who actually saw what this ensemble of France, Africa could become a really equal, progressive order within the international system that would be economically vibrant, culturally vibrant, and et cetera, et cetera, but that the French prevented from happening. And now we are reaping the, the fruit of that. And we say that these people are actually anti-French. I actually think that we have it backward. It's the French who have always been anti-African because they did not want the progress of Africa. And the people they eliminated were actually the ones who wanted a nuclear partnership with France. Yeah. And, and they were the people who were discarded. And now we are today at a place. That's why all of these those names on the lips of the young the young people who are coming to power today, the hunters, leading the hunters. That's what um, Sankara act, reacted against. Sekuduri, of course, before all of them, that's what he reacted against. This kind of sort of straight jacket put on Africans that were not going to help us go anywhere mm-hmm. simply to preserve French grandeur. Thank you. That was an elaborate answer. Thank you so much for drawing that history and connecting between these con- countries. In our conversations then off camera and offline, we spoke about and you made a distinction between political and ideological. And you so you said something along the lines of you may support these young army officials politically, even if you disagree with them ideologically. Why is that the case then? Or what do you uh, mean by that? Well, I said that if I must, yeah. I would defend them politically, but not ideologically. Mm-hmm. Politically, why? If the idea has always been that African, that African exercise agency, because the thing about post-colonial arrangement in West Africa is that people always said, you know, it's Africans, right? They have to decide what they want. So, in, again, this is what is happening. It is African agency. They are basically saying, we don't want these arrangements. Right? That moment, at some point, it has to happen. And it, it was never going to be not messy. Mm-hmm. It has to be messy. Sadly, it's these young people. I say ideologically, I'm not for it. That, that I'll be cautious, actually, is that I am not sure even they themselves understand the stakes, right? That they know what ails us. They know what the French have done. But I don't know that they actually understand what it takes today to, 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 to um, weave back the fabric, social fabric, cultural fabric, spiritual and etc. in West Africa that led Muslims, Christians, non-animists, people of different ethnic groups and etc. Within empires, well, yes, there were jihads and etc. But in the end, everybody retained their language. People, you know, we had Timbuktu, we had cultural centers, we have, we had all of those things, mm-hmm. right? I'm not sure that they actually know how to go that. And even though they, they, they think they are Pan-Africanists, mm-hmm. it actually requires a great deal more thinking about where we are now today to be able to do that. And I'm not sure that they, they can do that. I'm also not sure that, um, I actually, I'm not sure that they will be able to combat quote unquote terrorists right now because we are in a logic that tells me that the security situation would not be, is not about to go away. Mm-hmm. One of the things that has happened in the region security wise, and this is where I have to comment on that, I have to comment on that is that if you take Niger, in Niger, the Tuareg rebellion has been more, is more than 30 years old. In Mali, likewise. The Tuareg in Niger rebelled for multiple reasons. Of course, how 
Niger go- rulers ruled Niger. That's part of it. How they manage the economy, the resources from uranium being extracted from Niger, etc. But the extraction of, of uranium itself meant that a lot of twice were pushed off their land. So there was this is this is again this is a Sahel, very unforgiving country. People's the, the little that they have, where they could live, the, the little soil that they had to live on, agriculture and etc. All of that was being decimated by pushing them aside because it's open pit operation, and they had rebelled against that. Mali is the same thing. Right? It was very convenient of those governments that have not been able to combat these people, right? instead of negotiating with them, decide to combat them. Because that's, again, since the, our regimes of solidarity sharing, le partage, uh, all of those had gone by the wayside uh, along the way. And so the only way they could manage these people, and I'm putting that quotation mark here, was, was through, through wars. And then, obviously, after 9-11, a lot of things happened. Algeria decided not to let the fish govern in Tunisia. Brotherhoods were sort of, even not the most recent brotherhood, but earlier experiment of that, you know, were suppressed. There was the case of Libya. Obviously, Gaddafi was ultimately overthrown and etc. Anyway, a lot of people in the Sahel, in Tuareg, in the Tuareg in particular, seem to have memories of times when they ruled over this place. Again, Sony Aliba, who gave us Timbuktu, who was Berber, right? We have Berber Kingdom, we have all of this. So, these people actually are literate. They have writings, Tifana and Ajami. Right? Tifana is their own script, Ajami is whatever. So when we talk about Timbuktu archive, it should tell us multiple things. One of them is not just that they had beautiful archives. It's that people here have long traditions of institution making, government making, and et cetera, et cetera. And now those people are reduced to what? They are terrorists. Terrorists, why? Because they have been fighting to be either part of those government, Niger, Mali, and et cetera, or be their own, their, their own entities. Of course, what has happened, which is undeniable, is that after 9-11 and when the terrorists came in and then the drug trade and then state collapse and then everybody can dig, uh, can, can, can have uh, access to, to gold and et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. trade. And then people amass vast resources and et cetera, and then could actually have viable armies, right? Viable militias that could fight these governments. And this is the context in which obviously terrorism rises and et cetera. But this is the thing, and this is also what gives me, telling, telling me that, that politically I will defend these hunters. And, you know, the war on terror is a funny, very funny concept. The people, the place, the place that has become the theater of war in this war on terror, because war is not just inhabited by terrorists. It's inhabited by real people who had real lives, who have real activities and et cetera, et cetera. Those people have been trampled upon by everybody, the militias, the governments, and the American and the French. Yeah. So that is, it's, you know, to think that that is not consequential is actually, yeah. it's absurd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. These people are real human beings mm-hmm. whose lives for 40 years now has been disrupted by one crisis after another. At some point, one has to actually just stop our sort of pull back from our strategic and security concerns and actually talk about what people call in a sexy fashion human security that there, there is actually something called human security, right? That is actually what happened to these people, whether the, the citizenship, whether they can live, whether they can maintain their way of life, right? That is actually a more crucial problem. And and that, if nobody does something about that, this so-called war on terror will never succeed because those people obviously have become, some of them very rapidly Islamists, 
Some of them have become non-partisan. Whoever comes today, they deal with you and you leave. Somebody else comes, they deal with them because they just want to leave. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's, this is why the question of legitimacy, you don't know really what these people really, <laughs> which side they are on because, you know, they can fight. Everybody has guns, they can fight it. So whoever comes, they go along with you. Yeah. But in the meantime, life has become impossible for them. And the sign of that, you see all the young people from Niger, Mali dying on boats trying to get to Europe because life is no longer possible. Yes. Yeah. No, thank you so much for that. And in speaking about, I guess, the thread today, you gave a historical thread. Is there a thread today that still combines Niger, Guinea, Mali and Burkina Faso? The thread, obviously, is mm-hmm. what I said, that everything we say about history, anthropology, culture, and et cetera, et cetera, is one thing. And, and I'm not sure to dispute any of that. But what I can say is that in between telling ourselves our stories, people also have memories of certain ways of living together, certain ways of respecting other people, certain ways of sharing, right, that are actually disappearing. And the disappearance of that, young people today, in those three countries, blame two entities for it. The French and the African elite that have been governing us. Yeah. So they don't like the elite that have been governing us, so they want them out. Yeah. The coups. And they don't like the French, which is what you see in the signs. French those French. people out. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so Senegal, which has not had a coup, hopefully doesn't have a coup, but young people in Senegal gave us the best caption for that. It's called Yanama. Mm-hmm. We've had enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had enough. Yanama. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's Yanama you see on the street today. Yeah. You know, it's not that they actually like the coup makers. They just yeah. hate those elites and they hate the French. Yeah. Hate, I'm putting that to quotation mark. You can see my finger. It's scare quote. It's not that. It is that they are reacting to their own experiences. Yeah. And the way it comes out, since we are not in the seminar room, is to just say French out. Yeah. I'll take that as anti-French. I was going to say that because last time, <laughs> right. I know you, you have some issues with the framing of these coups being called an expression of anti-French sentiment. It's not. It's not anti-French. That's what I'm saying. If anything, it is the French who've been really anti-African. That's why I was telling you about all this since 1946. Yeah. Right? You have to remember that Africans really, again, no matter what our stories tell us, Africans were not just recruited to go defend France. Many of them were. But some of them joined voluntarily. The meeting in Chad between Félix Eboué, Lapi, and veterans of World War I to go defend France was actually a very beautiful moment where Africans were convinced that though the French were the colonizers, they can go defend France because the evil of Nazism was greater than even colonialism. Mm. These people could understand that. Yeah. And a lot of people in Francophone Africa understood that. Mm-hmm. What did we get from our participation in the war? On the day of liberation, quote, unquote, the goal issues a decree yeah. called whitening the army, blanchiment de l'armée. They had to take all the black people, put them in barracks, so that history can, does not record that Africans had anything to do with liberation of white people. So the celebration on, in August 44 was actually between American soldiers and French soldiers. Nobody, in our pictures, you don't see any any black soldiers, number one. Number two was Charing. Charing, when the French slaughtered people whose only sin was to say, pay us the same as you paid French people, we, we are veterans of the war, and etc., etc., they get slaughtered. Charing. Number three was Setif and Gelma. What people don't know about Setif and Gelma, how certain generations of Africans, myself included, how we feel that in our gut, mm. 
it's not just that Muslims were slaughtered on their way to the mosque on that day, right? It, it, it is that the murders of Setif and Galba happened on May 8, 1945, on the day of liberation. So if you are a certain generation of Africans and you are progressive, you see in Setif and Galma a very clear sign. It is to say, the war is over, now stay in line, or we'll murder you. Yeah. That's what Setif and Galma was about. It's not just the number of people who were whether it's It's not that. It happened on May 8, 1945, European Victory Day, yeah. VE Day, and it was a clear signal that the war was over, uh, you all had this fantasy that after the war you'll get your independences, you'll be free, and etc. Et you think again. To discipline them. To discipline them. Yeah. Those are brutal signs that the French sent that they were not in Africa. All of the South Alliance Francis, blah, 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 all that Francophonie. Yes, but anybody stood in the way of their interests will be treated as less than human. Mm-hmm. French policy toward Africa has been very, very, very anti African, anti black. Yeah. Right? And so the response on the street comes out in the same way. Yeah. So we just imagine that no, right? what the passion with which French defended its interests, especially Elf in Gabon, yeah. in whatever, uh, uh, uranium in, in Niger, because elect- French electricity, 70% French electricity comes from uranium. Yeah. Right? If somebody doesn't say a state passion, this imperial grandeur, it is it is at the level of the of affect. It's not this is not this is passion, this is not rational or whatever. French obsession in Africa is that is Absolutely in the gut. Yeah. So if you want to talk about the gut, you know, talk of who is anti what, then I'm willing to entertain a discussion of anybody and we will say who is anti what. I think that French policy in Africa has been very, very anti, anti black and anti, anti African. Sadly. I must, however, add a caveat always when I talk about France, that when we talk about official France, it's a certain political elite. Yeah. Because there has always been a left in France that was opposed to those policies. Yes. When France pulled these cadres from Guinea at the, after September 58, when we voted no, the board that came to take French bureaucrats out also brought French communist anarchists to come help Guinea. So wow. when we say La France, Les Français is not the same entity. I have, you know, French people don't want to hear that today. But when we say La France, we are talking about official French policy. Yeah. Les Français, we are much more mixed. Yes. Our histories are interconnected. This is not... And so when you say anti-French, it makes me laugh. I mean, what do I teach you at Cornell? I'm already reading Voltaire, Montaigne, and etc. <laughs> it's not that it's not anti-French. It is the anti-certain official French yeah. and its policies toward Africa. Exactly. This is not anti-French. Anti-French. Thank you so much. So then, what does a principled Pan-African stance sound like on coups in general? Is it condemn all, embrace all, a middle position, or what does it sound like? No, the middle position is actually what I will go for. I am not. You see, the thing about coups is not a choice that anybody should give me personally. <laughs> because, as, as I said, coups are illegal. Yeah. Period. Right? But coups originate in a particular context. Yeah. And that is context, it has to do with real lives, is what is important to me. Mm-hmm. The experience of people who are supporting the coups also matters to me. As a Pan-Africanist, that's what we should be looking for. Right? Since we are talking about Pan-Africanism, there are many things lately that have been happening in the Pan-African world. Yeah. For instance, Paolo, the Pan-African Lawyers Union, right? This idea that we should make the illicit exploitation of natural resources a crime against humanity. They have a lot of young move, movement in, in Africa among intellectuals, elite, you, right? To try to, 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 to ensure that people have a decent, <laughs> decent lives in Africa, mm-hmm. right? And so my principal standard of Pan-Africanism is for Africa agency. You know, yes. if these people can go out on their own, 
or changed course on their own and etc etc that is fine if they can't then i am not in habit of their game all i want is i hope that these young people understand that now that i are there they actually have to think about the larger goals and they have to know that we all have to construct our future together mm -hmm. and this is not just for people who've guns and it's not the theater of just having provisionally a few people and pretending that you are, you have a constitutional draft and etc etc those are not enough anymore and yes. and they too have to understand that they have seized the tiger by the tail and if they don't they don't manage it then the tiger will eat them too on the question of african agency though the west is in many of these protests images emerge in which we see some people on the streets with russian flags yes so um. <laughs> and then and i know for example in class we spoke about Congressman Gregory Meeks mm -hmm. countering malign Russian malign activities in France, yeah. and it kind of denotes that Africans are unable to think for themselves. There's always an influence, external influence on their thinking. So, to what do we owe in some of these images when we see flags of Russia? There is actually evidence of Russian dis dis disinformation in Africa, mm -hmm. but the question of Russia is actually complicated. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union, for better or for worse, although it was never in the economic model for many places, many political parties in Africa, the Soviet Union and China did contribute to the liberation of Africa from Algeria to South Africa. Mm -hmm. And our liberal friends in the West, and I'm putting friends in quotation marks here again, did not. Yeah. Not in Algeria, not anywhere, all those South Africa. In fact, in the Portuguese colonies, they supported a fascist regime, which was a NATO member, yeah. against Africans. Yeah. So when you say today, you know, when they say our Russian friends, of course, part of that is uh, giving the finger to somebody. Yeah. Part of the metaphor, <laughs> right? But part of it actually is to say, to again, to, to, to harken back to a past when there were people who actually wanted to help us. Mm -hmm. Russia in those days, when they were supporting liberation movements in Africa, did not do it because they had economic gains. Yeah. It was later framed in the Cold War, but, but the Soviet Union actually did. That is something we have to accept. The Soviet Union did help the vast majority of independence movement in Africa mm -hmm. helped Nasser build the Aswan Dam. Help, I mean, you can just go through liberation movement in Angola, Mozambique, everywhere. Algeria just spoke about that. South Africa, of course. Namibia, everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, the Soviet Union does not present a viable economic model for us. And I mean, Russia today does not provide all of that stuff. But that debt to the Soviet Union is actually real. Mm -hmm. And I'm using debt again here with quotation mark because it's metaphorical, but there is a certain debt to, to the Soviet Union and there's a certain acknowledgement in those flags mm -hmm. showing up in the crowds that the West actually never stood really for independence in Africa. Even though liberal internationalism was predicated on self-determination, etc., et yeah. politically, they did not support decolonization in Africa. Yeah, exactly. People then say, though, how do we ensure the next wave or this new generation of, of people who call themselves Pan-Africans, that you're not going from the frying pot into the fire in the sense that you're leaving one set of colonial masters and embracing the Chinese or you're embracing Russian now. Well, which is what I was saying. Hence, when I was telling you that ideologically, I don't know that I can be on the same line as these people mm -hmm. because I think that the work to be done mm -hmm. is actually not to, is not to get rid of somebody, mm -hmm. is not to insult somebody, Africa will never be autarkic, has never been. Mm -hmm. We are not going to live without all the countries in the world, Western or otherwise, mm -hmm. right? I think that what is required, in fact, we should, the French and the Americans had seem to have forgotten at some point, is a self-determination meant that we are friends with everybody. You know, the non-aligned movement, Yugoslavia, Cyprus, and etc., et the Chinese came, 
after Bandung, the Russian Soviet Union came, and the independence movement, etc., etc., India, we should be able to, to actually, everybody should be able to, to be in Africa. And, and this narrative that Africans have to be pro-somebody is in itself, goes, is in itself contrary to what these critics think that they believe, because they believe in, in democracy and freedom, etc., but they want us to have, to choose our friends based on their own sentiment and etc. So, no, exactly. this is not going to be that way. Okay. But I think that what I was saying ideologically was that the work to be done is actually deeper. And if I may allow myself, lately I've been bemoaning a lot the abandonment of Africa by its elites. Mm -hmm. I think we, we have missing a moment to really think seriously about where we are, where we've come from, and to help these young people think through constitutional forms and institutions that help, help us go forward. Role as intellectuals is not just to be on the side, being arbiters, denouncing, you know, smacking some people because they were bad, bad for bad behavior, other people, whatever. That is not what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. And so this moment is for all of Africa, all Africans, not just those people who are in power, because us, even on the sideline, are implicated in that. When you talk about agency, right, history has actors, agents, and subject. Mm -hmm. The actors are there on the ground. These are the hunters and etc. Et but the real agent of change has to be all of us, particularly the elite. And the subject of our changes, our pro proposals and etc. Et has to be, the subject has to be African, right? Not African isolated from anybody, but an African who functions in the world like anybody. Free to choose, free to have their own appetite, their own desires, mm -hmm. give themselves the trajectories that they want, and etc. etc. That is what is required at this moment. And, and, and so this idea that we can just, as intellectuals, now I'm talking about intellectuals, just with bad actor, good actor, we don't like who's you, that is not. Mm -hmm. There's this moment, this is a moment of serious thinking, right? And you know there are people who are doing that serious thinking. It happened in time of Kwame Nkrumah and Julius Nyerere, and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, even if you take Tabon Beke's Africa Renaissance today, Right? It's predicated on Africans developing new ways of governing themselves. Mm -hmm. New ways, not democratic. The question is not you know, whether you have elections or not. Yes, exactly. Right? It's, it's not about democracy. It's actually about governance. Yes. Right? And at, at this point, we actually really, really have to help think through. And if Africans and intellectuals can come together, even on the sidelines, even though we are not necessarily, we can't go tell those hunters do this, even on the sideline, begin to think about schemes of governance and et cetera, and analyze region by, by region, country by country, and provide possible outcome, the next junta leader or the next political parties and et cetera, might seize upon those ideas. Mm -hmm. But we have to give them that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Professor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>